Everybody else, turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. If you are visiting, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we are picking up where we left off. So we are at Matthew chapter 19, and we'll read from verses 18 to 34. If you're visiting, I'm, I'm Joe Hilrich. I'm one of the pastors, elder here at Covenant. Very excited to uh, come before you today and study God's Word. Uh, it's a really uh, glorious passage that we'll be reading this morning. So we're at Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, this is God's holy Word. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, O son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spoke and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Father, as we uh, turn to the scriptures and specifically as we look at some of the great uh, miracles performed by your son, and as we see them, Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would help us to to, to truly grasp uh, the glory, the beauty, uh, the splendor of, of who Jesus is, what he has done, and ultimately what he will continue to do uh, in our lives and in this world. May, may we uh, see a very big Jesus this morning. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. All right, did you hear about Paul Bunyan? Story of Paul Bunyan and his faithful uh, babe, the blue ox, it's outlandish. It's quite entertaining. He's a larger-than-life lumberjack. Uh, by the swing of his axe, he could clear a, uh, a complete forest. So not just a tree, a forest with his axe. He dug the Great Lakes, in case you were unaware, uh, to quench the thirst of his fellow loggers and the Mississippi River. It's a result of him dragging his axe behind him while he was walking through the United States. Uh, stories like Paul Bunyan, Pico's Bill, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, we call them tall tales. 
their wildly exaggerated adventures of these folk heroes, there's usually limited to no truth necessarily tied to them. They're more for, for entertaining. Uh, but as I was looking through tall tales this week, one particular name kept popping up on lists. And I named some of them, Johnny Appleseed, all these. But Jesus of Nazareth kept popping up on these lists as tall tales. Because that's the world's perception of Jesus and of the Bible, that these are just exaggerations, these are just uh, entertainment, but I mean, there's no way that people could do what this person is said to do. But what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is not a, a, tell t- a tall tale, he's a true tale. I mean, what we read about Jesus in our passage is historical fact. These things really happen. The exploits of Christ they're not exaggerations, but further displays of the Messiah at hand. While some see embellishments, some see this can't happen, this was Jesus on a Monday. You understand? Or Jesus on a Tuesday or whatever day this happened. This was a, a typical day in the life of Jesus where you see his glory, his greatness, and the might of Jesus Christ. He is more than a miracle worker. He is the one who saves our souls And that's what we're going to consider uh, this morning. It's a highly encouraging passage. So whatever is going on in your life right now, uh, be it relational strife, financial difficulties, uh, health issues, whatever it is, I truly believe that God has you here today to find comfort as we look at Jesus in in all his glory uh, this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to break down the passage real simple, real easy. We're going to look at four miracles because that's what we see in this passage. We're looking at miracle number one, the dead raised. It's going to be the first time in the Gospels, we need to understand this, that Jesus raises somebody from the dead. This is the first account. Now we're going to see it happen again, but this is the first time that we see Jesus raising somebody from the dead. Uh, miracle number two, we're going to look at the, the miracle within the miracle, uh, where the sick, is, the sick is healed. So we see the sick healed in miracle number two. A miracle number three is going to be the two-for-one special. We're going to see two blind men uh, being able to see. And then miracle number four, we'll wrap up our time and see the mute speaks. And we'll see Jesus' rule over Satan and the consistent pushback on Jesus being who he says he is. All right, so let's get started. We'll pick up at verse 18 as we see the dead raised. Now, if you remember last week, uh, we were really encouraged that Jesus is better, that Jesus is, is really what everything is pointing towards in the Bible. If you remember last week, John's disciples go to Jesus. They're asking, hey, we fast, your disciples don't. What's going on? And, and, and Pastor Andy, I thought, did such a great job explaining to us. It's not really fasting wasn't the issue. The issue is they were getting so tied up and distracted by all of these things, and they weren't appreciating the fact that Jesus is here, that the Savior is, is on hand. And it's in that context that these opportunities present Jesus uh, for miracles. Now, in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, there are 10 miracles. In the whole gospel there's, uh, of Matthew, there's 20 So over half of the miracles that we see in the Gospel of Matthew are found in these two chapters, and four of them are going to be in today's uh, passage. They further demonstrate the greatness of who Jesus is. 
So we're going to begin as we look at the dead race. I want us to see the problem of death. Read verse 18. Now, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, we, we need to understand, so the synagogues in various towns, they would have had a, a equivalent of like a board of elders that would have been ruling, uh, helped to dictate what went on at the synagogue when they had gatherings, all of that stuff. So there was not um, reckless, it was not out of control. Well, it appears that this particular gentleman is the chief of the elders at that particular synagogue in Capernaum. We actually know his name, Luke 8.41, says his name was Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet. He implored him to come to his house, for he had only uh, one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So first of all, we need to understand that Jairus coming to Jesus was scandalous. You remember Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, when he comes to Jesus, when does he come to Jesus? At night, when nobody would have even known about it, Jairus comes in the middle of commotion and people everywhere. Remember, it was standing room only at the place that Jesus was. And it's in that context that he comes, but he's desperate. Also, what we see when we combine the various gospel accounts on this story is he initially comes to Jesus. His daughter is still alive, okay? But then over the, like, whatever happened from the time he went and initially talked to Jesus, the daughter dies. He finds out, uh, Mark uh, 5.35, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher now? So it's too late. Little too little, uh, a little too late. It, so we need to understand, how old did I say the daughter was? 12 years old. That's significant. In the Jewish culture, a boy becomes a man at the age of 13. A, a daughter becomes a woman at the age of 12. It reminds me of, you've seen it in bank commercials, uh, loan commercials, uh, various things where you'll, you'll, you'll see this person, they're going to have a baby and they need to get a new house. And you'll have these visions where the baby starts getting older and starts being a toddler. And next thing you know, the baby's driving their first car and then the baby is going away to college. And you kind of see that, that progression. And you can only imagine this is Jarvis's only daughter. This is it for him. And in the midst of all of this, he's probably affluent. He's in this position of power and authority. And his daughter dies. That there's no future vision of his daughter having kids, of him being a grandfather, all of that. I, I think we just read these passages, unfortunately, where we detach a little bit of our humanity and we just kind of go on. Can you imagine dealing with that reality? I mean, some of you here, you have lost a child. And, and like she, he, he finds this. And what is so remarkable in Jairus is his faith. They come to him and they say, it's too late. She's dead. Why bother him? And Jesus comforts him in Mark 4.36. He says, don't fear. Just only believe. And he does. Listen, listen to the words he says here. It's remarkable. If you come and lay your hand on her, she will live. 
Like he's looking at Jesus. His daughter is dead and he's got that kind of faith. He's got that kind of a view of Jesus that it ain't over yet. Well, how strong is your faith in the darkest times? How easily are you swayed by your circumstances? Because I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself. Man, when adversity when trials, when difficulties come my way, man, I feel very often that my prayer is, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I look at Jairus, and he's, he's facing the, the closure of life, the loss of his daughter, and he says, but Jesus is here. And that doesn't mean it's over yet. Because that's what we see, the problem of death, but we see the power of Jesus. So go down to verse 23 with me. We'll come back up to the previous verses. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now a Jewish funeral typically had three, three parts to it. One, it would have clothes being torn. Two, they would hire professional mourners. So there would be people literally that would get paid to just make a big fuss. And then third, they would hire a flute player. We start seeing the insincerity of the, motor, of the mourners because once Jesus comes and starts speaking truth, they start mocking Jesus. So I don't think these were people that were necessarily close to Jairus and his daughter. They weren't grieving the fact that a 12-year-old girl just died. They think Jesus is a joke for saying that this child is sleeping. And like I said, it's the first account in the Gospels of raising the dead. So it, it even expands Jairus' faith because he doesn't have a previous. This isn't like right after Nicodemus was raised and like, hey, I saw Nicodemus, or not Nicodemus, after Lazarus was raised. I saw Lazarus was raised. Oh, obviously Jesus can do this. This is, this is the first time that we see this in the gospel. And as I mentioned, what we see in all of this is it's not over till Jesus says it's over. I mean, we say that statement sometimes. We say it in sports where you think a game is over and it ends up not being over. Maybe it's a relationship. You think there's no way we can see this relationship restored. And sure enough, it's restored. We've seen it in businesses where it looked like a business was going to go bankrupt. And all of a sudden, it kind of got back on its feet and then ended up thriving. Well, with Jesus, truly, it's not over until he says it's over. That he has the power over life and death. He decides, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's why we can sing the song, our only hope in life and death is Jesus. Like even in this passage, as we're going to see the, the daughter raised, it's really symbolic of what has happened to each and every one of you in this gym today if you are a follower of Christ. You understand that, right? Because as a sinner, you're born into this world spiritually dead. Paul talks about it. You are dead in your transgressions and, and sin. David said, I was sinful even in my mom's womb. And what Jesus does is he comes along and makes us alive in Christ. So when we see these resurrections such as here and with Lazarus, it's really just a foreshadowing of what he does spiritually for you and I. 
Well, have you experienced this resurrection power? Have you seen what Jesus can do and has done, spiritually speaking, for all of us who are in Christ? So we see the dead race. We see the problem of death. We see the the power of Jesus. Secondly, I want us to look at miracle number two, the sick healed. In the middle of a miracle is a miracle. Did you get that? And I think there's an intentionality there that Jesus had this kind of in-between things for a reason. Let's go to verse 20. I want us to look at the woman's condition. So behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Anybody here, not embarrassed to say, anybody here uh, suffer from chronic pain? We got some different people. I, I know, I, I know some who have suffered from years of migraines. I know people who have major back issues, knee issues. Anybody that's had a chronic. I know people who've had uh, nerve-related issues and, and skin ailments. If you've ever experienced a chronic pain, it weighs on you more than the physical realm. It drains you emotionally. When doctors run test after test and they just can't figure out a solution, it breaks your spirit. I've, I've I've seen it firsthand in the lives of people. Well, this woman, she had this ongoing, and it appears the language, this consistent bleeding from a, in a woman's way of, of, of dealing with it. Um, yeah, so I don't know how to say that. Parents, ask your mom. All right, or, or kids, ask your mom. Um, she would, have, she would have had fatigue as a result of this. She would have likely had pain. And listen to what it says. It, 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 I, I think there's even a fitting, you know, we just looked at a 12-year-old girl that had died. The whole life of that 12-year-old girl, this woman battled this pain again and again. And it was so bad, she kept trying to get the problem fixed. Mark 5:26. listen to what it says. She suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had. But here's the problem. But she was no better, but rather rather grew worse. So she kept spending money hoping it was going to finally fix the problem. And it didn't fix the problem. It got worse. So now she's dealing with the physical element of it. And she doesn't have any money. And Luke, remember physician Luke he wants to stress, hey, it's not just some bad doctors. Nobody can do it. Luke 8.43 says she could not be healed by anybody. So that, that is her. So if that was it, man, we feel bad for this woman, don't we? But friends, I would argue this isn't even the beginning of the problems for her. The bigger issue is her disease made her an outcast. Her, her, her chronic suffering made her a pariah on the culture. 
Leviticus 15, 25, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. She was always in her impurity as a result of this disease. If she is clean, verse 28, of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after then she shall be clean. So if she would be able to go seven days without the bleeding, then she would be clean, then she would be okay. But that was never the case. So for 12 years, she is unclean. And if she is unclean, what does that do relationally? Anybody who is near her, anybody who touches her, they become unclean. So we don't know much about her. She could have been married, she could have had kids, but all of them had to stand at a distance from her because of this. So she's suffering from the physical pain. She's suffering uh, from uh, just this constant, chronic, like horrible experience. And on the worst part, she is an outcast. She is isolated. She's like a leper in that culture. And we got her in the midst of that. The thing is so beautiful. Once again, you got Jairus, his daughter dies, and he's like, I believe Jesus can do something about it. We've got this woman who's battled 12 years. Every physician's not been able to do it, but she's like, Jesus isn't a physician. He's more. And he, she's, she's so convinced. She's like, if I just touch part of his clothing, and he would have these tassels lightly uh, hanging from his clothes. If I just touch them, as long as I touch them, I think I can be made heal, healed. Well, you're your lost hope. I mean, some of you here today might even be in that place with those physical sufferings. I, I just, I can't deal with this anymore. Are you keeping your faith in spite of this? So we see the woman's condition, but I, I really want us to stress the Savior's compassion. The Savior's compassion. Notice when this happened. This was the miracle within the what? The miracle, Right? So I read the, the part with Jesus healing and, and raising the dead. Jesus just found out Jairus' daughter had died. They're going to what we're going to find out, obviously, that Jesus is going to raise her from the dead. But as he's going, this woman interrupts it all. You understand? He interrupts, like, I don't know about you, one of the things that drives me a little crazy, but I understand it, so I'm, I'm, I'm not being critical, but certain like doctors or dentists, when you call to make an appointment, and it's like, can you look two years ahead from now? You know what I mean? Like, like hey, I'd like to schedule an appointment. Well, we're taking appointments for 2025. I'm like, what's well, spectacular? At that point, when I'm dead, then I'll come to your appointment. I was like, it's kind of a little bit more of a pressing nature to, to come to you. You know, here's the deal, and, and, and this is why I want us to really think through, is Jesus is kind of busy. He's got to go resurrect a dead 12-year-old, but he has time still to heal this woman who had been suffering for 12 years. And I think what we glean from that is Jesus is never, we're never too inconvenient for Jesus. That Jesus looked at every opportunity as a divine opportunity. Ephesians 5, 16, he says, uh, make the most of your opportunities because the days are evil. And Jesus, and also look at the diversity. Jesus is helping the ruler of the synagogue and a social outcast. Like Jesus helps a wide range of people in a wide range of situations. 
He's never too busy because he cares for the brokenhearted and the needy. He's not rough either. Listen to a language. Luke 8, 48 says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The actual word used where it says that you've been made well, there's other words they use in the other gospels uh, with regards to healing her, but that word is primarily used for salvation. So I think it's fairly safe without speculating too much that Jesus not only healed her of her disease, he healed her of her sin and brought her salvation and that her faith in who Jesus was and is did, it was a life transformation. She walked away there not bleeding and she also walked away from there uh, in a relationship with, with Christ because that's the compassion of our Savior. Are you too busy for other people. I mean, think about it. How many times have you had opportunities? And I'm not saying we don't use wisdom and don't use discernment, but how many times that we view people as burdens, as an inconvenience? I'd love to help you, but I got to go to this, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do that. And Jesus, in the midst of going to to resurrect a dead person, says, hey, I can take the time to heal this woman who is suffering. Do you have that kind of compassion within you? All right, so we're miracle number three. Miracle number one, the dead was raised, problem of death, power of Jesus. Miracle number two, sick healed, woman's condition, Savior's compassion. Let's look at miracle number three, the blind See, he heals two blind men. Notice, first of all, that they seek mercy. Verse 27, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us. Would you agree or disagree? If you agree, raise your hand. If you disagree, you're wrong, but... Would you say, generally speaking, our culture, our society, currently, fairly entitled feeling? Yeah? I would argue strongly, uh, facts would, would definitely defend my conclusion. I mean, people want minimum wage to rival the income of a lawyer, People want free this, free that, free that. You owe me. You owe me. I mean, especially, and I'm sounding old. I'm sounding like my dad. Like these young people. I've caught myself saying it. They, they just want everything handed. When I was a kid, you know, walking uphill both ways in the snow with no clothes, going to my second job after school, but no, I, I do. I think there's this sense of an entitlement. And what is really remarkable with these blind men is right from the beginning in their interactions with Jesus, there's no entitlement. The very first thing that they say is they don't say, Jesus, give us our sight. Jesus, help us see. Jesus, we're blind. We need you to fix this. The very first thing they say is what? Have mercy on us. 
I think they knew the truth. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. They had a proper disposition with the Lord. They realized that they don't deserve anything. Friends, I I think we need to have that epiphany moment, that realization that you and I, we don't deserve anything. You understand that? What we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is hell. What we deserve is condemnation. This one particular song, uh, I've always loved the lyrics, "The the beauty of grace is it makes life unfair. And that's what we see here. These men, they don't deserve mercy, but they plead for it. They, they cry out to Jesus for that. Ephesians 2, 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God. And it's really remarkable. So they cry out to Jesus, as we're going to see, have mercy, and then Jesus does what? Walks on by them keeps on walking by, goes into the house that he was staying at, and they, I don't know how, obviously because they're blind, somebody's probably guiding and directing them, helping them to get to Jesus, but they don't give up. They're perseverant. They, Jesus walks on by. They're making a public, public spectacle where it says that they were crying out. It's the language of screaming. It would have been awkward, all right? Have mercy! Have mercy! And people would be like, come on, dial it down a notch. Everybody's staring. And they don't care because, like, we need to get to Jesus. And aren't we seeing that as a pattern in this passage? Jarus, I gotta get to Jesus. This woman, unknown woman, I gotta get to Jesus. These blind men, I got to get to Jesus. Well, do you need mercy today? Are you going to Jesus for this? But not only do they seek mercy, they see the Messiah. They see the Messiah. This is truly remarkable. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be done to you. And the eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. The, the part I forgot to read was in the previous verse. He says, have mercy on us. And then he makes a term, son of David. Son of David. Every year, when I, every time I have to renew my driver's license, I'm always a little paranoid with the vision tests. Amen? Anybody? Because I'm like, am I going to fail it? And like, you're, like, it's like I'm sweating a little bit. I'm nervous. I know my wife specifically gets a little anxious sit over it. And as I'm getting older, I have to admit, I mean, I'm safe enough to drive. So anybody from BMV or Ohio, yeah, I'm still good. But my vision is not as good as it was when I was younger. And like, I remember even with one of the kids are doing the test and I'm kind of sitting over there trying to do it myself. I'm like, I'm really bad. Like 2020 is long gone uh, for me. I mean, it's really, here's the wonder of this passage. As two blind people 
see better than everybody there. Because they, they can't see Jesus, but they see Jesus. They call him Son David. It's the second time we've seen Son of David in the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember when we saw it first? Verse 1. That was one of the titles. The Son of David. After this passage, we're going to see Son of David eight more times in the Gospel of Matthew. And the emphasis, emphasis every time when we see Son of David in Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed. He is the Messiah. Because God had promised David, 2 Samuel 7, 12, I will raise up for you an offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and, and his kingdom will last forever. And they have faith. That's the, the wonder of this. As these blind men, and we're going to see the juxtaposition of them with the Pharisees, the people who have sight don't see and the people who can't see, see. And that's really the the wonders of the eyes of faith. That seeing Jesus for who he is is not tied to intellect. It's not tied to your intelligence. It's not tied to your social status, your bank account, your religious experience. It ultimately comes to God giving you eyes to see. And though these men were blind, they saw Jesus for who he was now we're also going to see in all this, they're going to need more mercy because Jesus tells them, and this is not reverse psychology with Jesus, okay? Understand this. When he tells them to don't tell anybody, he wants them to not tell anybody. Twofold probably reason, one, is people, it's creating more um, opposition from the Pharisees and scribes. So like trying to not uh, increase the pushback and then also, the more Jesus does stuff like this, they're more enamored with Jesus, the miracle worker, and less with Jesus, the teaching. But they can't help it. So in, in, in fairness to them, though they did disobey, it's because they're so overwhelmed with gratitude. Like we sang this morning, all I owe. They wanted to tell everybody about it, and that's what Jesus did. Well, do you have faith in Jesus? Did God open up your eyes? Because truth be told, like we started in the beginning, you all were dead, you all were blind. We were blind men and women and children. We were. We were walking around. We couldn't see anything. We're tripping over everything. And yet Jesus opened our eyes and he let us see for him and who he is. All right, so we see the dead raised. We see the sick healed. We saw the blind see. They sought mercy. They see the Messiah. Lastly, we're going to look at the, the last miracle, miracle number four, the mute speaks. First of all, we see proof in who Jesus is. Read verse 32 with me. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel but the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. First of all, let's look at the proof. What we read here along with some of the other miracles that we just saw, it's describing someone. I've never actually uh, had an Uber driver, but I've been told one of the things when you'll get an Uber driver is you usually get a description of the car. So you especially, you might not think much about it in Ohio, but if you're in New York City, there's a lot of cars. 
You probably don't want to just get in a random car and assume that this is the individual that is to drive you. So they'll describe the make, the model, might give you the license plate. So you're like, you look like, all right, it's a black sedan. Uh, it's got this license plate. This is clearly my driver. I can go into this driver. What we see here with Jesus is this is a description of a particular person promised in the Bible. And that person is who? The Messiah. Because you remember John the Baptist, who, like Jesus said, there's nobody who's, who ever has come before like John the Baptist, and yet John, in jail, in prison, had doubts, had wonders. He sent his disciples and said, hey, you need to ask Jesus, are you the one that is to come, or should I be expecting someone else? And then listen what Luke 7, says. Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you have seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And then we look at Isaiah 35, 4 to 6. Speaking of this Messiah, he's going to come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be made open, the ears of the dead unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. You see, Jesus was not some random miracle worker. No, he is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. Well, do you see Jesus for who he says he is? See, the proof, but here in the midst of all, it, it, verse 34 is just so shocking. You see the pushback. Some are amazed. The crowds marvel. We've never seen anything like this. And agreed, right? Dead person raised, a chronically sick person healed, blind men are seeing. This is remarkable. A mute person who is demon possessed is now able to speak the glories of Christ. What in the world? is going on, and yet the Pharisees, and we're going to look at this later in Matthew, where they're going to also argue that Jesus is basically an instrument of Satan. They give, that's the reason why Jesus is able to do what they do. And here's the, here's the reality with the Pharisees. They are blind. They just are. I mean, we probably have all at some point growing up as kids got blindfolded, maybe for a pinata, whatever. But sometimes when you're blindfolded, you, can, you can't see, but you can see. We use a really uh, thin handkerchief, and you can kind of, and you pretend like you can't, oh, I can't see, but like you can see. Like, wow, you're pretty skilled for not being able to see. Like, these guys are blindfolded with a bag over there. They just can't see. Mark 4.12, Jesus warned of this, they indeed see, but they don't perceive. They indeed hear, but they don't understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Of anybody who should have known better when they watched Jesus do what they do, it should have been the Pharisees. The experts of the law who are studying something that ultimately points to the giver of the law in Christ, and yet they don't see they don't get it. Their vision is impaired. Like I said, the two blind people saw way better than the Pharisees. 
Do you believe today? Are you grateful that you believe? Do you give God the glory for your belief? I think sometimes we are too quick to take credit for our salvation. We look at an unbelieving world and we judge them. We're critical of them. We might not say it, but we think it. Praise God, I'm not like that tax collector. Friends, you would be in the same position these Pharisees are in if it wasn't for the grace, if it wasn't for the mercy of God. Nobody here gets any credit for their salvation. He didn't owe you. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to give you eyes to see. He didn't have to give you ears to hear. He didn't give you a heart to understand. He didn't give you a, a brain that could comprehend. No, he, he did that out of his grace and mercy. So when we look at unbelievers, we should have pity on them. We should have mercy. We should be praying, God, do what you did to me. Do what you did to me. One of my favorite book series to read the children over the years was the story of Clifford, the Big Red Dog. Spoiler alert, if you have never read Clifford, the Big Red Dog, uh, his owner is Emily Elizabeth. So uh, parents let Emily Elizabeth get a dog, Clifford. What we know initially of Clifford in his pedigree has a mom, has two brothers, two sisters, all normal-sized dogs. Clifford is the runt of the, the litter. Uh, seems like he's destined to be small and sick. But Emily Elizabeth loves on this dog. Emily Elizabeth cares for this dog. And a surprising consequence of her love and care happens to this dog. This dog keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, like, as the story goes on, Clifford ends up being like Godzilla, but like a, a, a nice puppy. It's this huge dog, all as a result of her love and devotion on this dog. Extraordinary size. Here's my question for you this morning. How big is your Jesus? I think for some of us here, Jesus is nothing. You might not know Christ. Maybe for whatever reason you're coming to church and he's just, he's, it's insignificant. I know some stuff. I know he's born of a virgin. I think he died on a cross. But like for all intended purposes, every day of the week, Jesus means nothing to you. I think there's some here though that Jesus is kind of important. Probably the majority of you here would say, you know, he's my, he's my ticket into heaven, so he is, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. But I think for a few of you all here, Jesus is gigantic. He's huge. It's demonstrated by how you live how you speak, how you spend your money, how you pray, 
how you act. Jesus is enormous and magnificent. That, and, and friends, that group of people, however many are in this room that could be categorized by that, that is God's intent. That is God's ideal for us. That as we grow in our faith, that Jesus would get bigger. You know, Emily Elizabeth, she loves Clifford. He gets bigger. As we grow in our faith, Jesus gets bigger. But here's the difference. Clifford literally was getting bigger. Jesus isn't getting bigger, friends. It's just our perceptions of Jesus are getting bigger. We get to, we're actually seeing him for what he always has been. And that is grand and glorious and majestic and mighty and all-powerful and all-awesome. And as we grow in our faith, we start seeing it more and more. That, man, my Jesus is mighty and awesome and powerful. He is so big. And I think these four miracles should be the exclamation point on that, that that's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. So whatever obstacle you're facing, I knew I'd cry if I brought this up. I found out today a friend of mine, uh, can't really share who, um, a friend of mine, his wife, was diagnosed with likely stage two breast cancer. Just found out. Uh, everything is very uh, new. Uh, they're figuring out what they're going to do. But as I thought of that, and as I was working on my sermon even this morning, I'm like, is Jesus big? Is Jesus caught off guard on my friend's wife's diagnosis? Is Jesus like... I wasn't paying attention to those cancer cells. I didn't. I was busy, you know, revolving the universe and everything. Jesus is big. And and as I'm even thinking about, like, I can't wait to see how Jesus uses this for the good of the people that he's around and the glory of his name. And friends, that needs to be our paradigm that we live out this life. Whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever difficulty, I don't care how bad our culture and our society goes, I don't care who gets elected in November, whatever those circumstances are, whatever diagnosis you get from the doctor, whatever it is, is my Jesus big enough? And what's the answer? Yeah, he is. He is, and that should be our heart, that should be our passion that my Jesus is able. Let's pray. Father, we, one, want to acknowledge our doubts, our fears. Forgive us, Lord, for domesticating Jesus. Forgive us for creating Jesus in our own image. And not having a proper respect and reverence in all of how mighty Christ is. I pray for each and every one of us here that we would be leaving here today with a greater wonder of our Lord. And I do pray for whatever trial, tribulation, adversity, suffering that is being endured by those in attendance, God that they would truly believe that you are bigger than the problem, 
If you want to, you can fix or remedy the problem. And if not, you will give them the grace and mercy to make it through the problem. And that part of that problem might be so that they will have a testimony of what it looks like to endure hardship for the sake of Jesus. And may many come to know faith through their adversity. We ask all this in the precious and wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand.